Our reading this evening is 2 Corinthians chapter 13. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. O Lord, have mercy on us. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Paul has been playing along for 12 chapters, really, playing along with the foolishness that the Corinthians were indulging. They had been listening to some false apostles who were saying that Paul was not much of an apostle, that they were better apostles than he was. They came with power, and look at Paul, he's so weak. We speak clearly in Paul. He has kind of a difficult time speaking plainly to you. He writes you letters, yes, but look, we're here. We're here, and we're mighty, and we're showing you who Jesus really is. That's what those false apostles were saying. And so Paul had to write them another letter. He didn't want to visit them under such circumstances because he knew it would be a painful visit. He had warned them about false apostles. He had told them that Jesus Christ and him crucified, that that's our only hope. That's the only message. That's how you measure an apostle is, is he preaching Christ? And here they were, wandering off, following another gospel, believing in another Jesus who was no Jesus at all. To make his point, Paul has kind of been playing along in their foolishness. He says, you indulge fools all the time, so maybe you'll indulge me. We don't want to hear about boasting, Paul says. I can boast better than those guys, and you know how the story goes. He boasts in his weakness, in his shipwrecks, in his danger, in his trials, his imprisonment, in his persecution, in the thorn in his side, the thing that assails him all the time that the Lord won't take away. He boasts in his weakness because, as Jesus has said to Paul... God's power is made perfect in weakness. Paul indulged this foolishness for a time, like a dad boxing with his kids. But then, 
There comes a point when the foolishness is over, and that's where we are here now in chapter 13. Enough nonsense, Paul says. He gets serious. He says it to them plainly. I'm going to make another visit. I'm coming to see you, and here's what's going to happen. There's going to be none of this behavior. There's going to be no gossiping, no backbiting, no slander, no selfishness, no sexual immorality, none of the things that you've been doing you're going to clean up now so that when I come, we don't have to deal with them. You're going to clean up now, as Paul said in his last chapter, because if I come and I have to deal with these things, it's going to be humiliating for you, and it's going to be humiliating for me, and it would be better if we could have a joyful visit in Christ. But, Paul says, I'm going to deal with it if it's there. I'm not going to spare anyone who is detracting from Christ's church. I'm not going to spare anyone who is leading people astray. And in that way, Paul is a good father. It's the father who hates his son that spares the rod, but the one who wields the rod is diligent to discipline his son because he loves him. Paul is coming, and if there's any sin to be dealt with, he's going to deal with it. Now, he says, we're not going to have all kinds of charges brought up about people just because you don't like them. Every charge must be brought with two or three witnesses. That's the biblical model. We're not going to just start saying things about people. There need to be two or three witnesses about a sin. And actually, the biblical model goes this way in the book of Deuteronomy. If you were one of the witnesses who brought a charge against somebody, you also, in the case of capital punishment, you also had to throw the first stone. The two or three witnesses took the, had to take their job seriously. You can't just be a tattletale. You can't just be a snitch, as kids so commonly are. If somebody's caught in sin, you have to care about them. You can't just be having your way with them. You can't just be throwing them under the bus. You have to actually want them to be restored. And so think carefully about what you're doing, Paul says. That's the biblical model. And that's what's going to happen when he comes. And his hope, his hope is that they will have listened. That they will have seen in all of his foolishness, in all of the time that he's taken with him, and all the patience in all of his labor and his anxiety over their well-being, he's hoping that they would see that what he wants for them is salvation. That what he wants for them is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's not after them for any other reason. He has no skin in this game besides seeing them in heaven. That is why he is laboring over them. And his hope is that when he comes, he can rejoice. To see them walking in the truth. Nothing rejoices a father's soul quite like seeing his children walking in the truth. And that is what Paul is hoping for. He doesn't know for sure what's going to happen, but he's not done with them. He's not done with them. He's ready to come in power. He says, I know that I have boasted about my weakness, but Christ is not weak. Christ is powerful. If you want proof of my apostleship, you will see it when I come and I speak to you the truth. Without shame, without hiding, without hedging, without qualifying, when I just speak to you the truth, it might look like I have failed. It might look like I am weak, but the truth, the truth is strong and you will feel it. We come to you with power, Paul says. I've not been weak in dealing with you. I've indulged your weakness. I'm weak in Christ, but Christ is powerful. Test yourselves. They wanted to put Paul to the test. That's really what they were doing this whole time. Are you really an apostle? Are you really the one we should listen to? You? Do you really have the gospel of Jesus? And Paul says to them, you wanted to test me, test yourselves. Are you walking in the faith? Do you really believe in Jesus? 
Before you can undertake to test anyone else, you must test yourself. Jesus has told us that. Before you try to remove the speck from someone else's eye, what do you need to do? But take the log out of your own eye. Now, that's not a call for no judgment whatsoever. Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye so that you can actually see to help your neighbor. If you care, Paul says, about what I'm teaching, test yourselves so that then you can help one another. Put yourself to the test. This is not about appearances, but about reality. It's all for your sake, Paul says. It's always been all for your sake. And so he wants to get the hard stuff out of the way right now. And he gives them this very practical advice, which I think can find a home in every Christian, in every family, in every Christian congregation. Rejoice. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. Be close enough to one another that you're willing to give one another a holy kiss. Now, you don't have to do that to one another. I'm not saying that you should go around kissing all of your brothers and sisters in Christ, but you should love one another so thoroughly that you would be willing to share such intimacy with them because there is nothing between you. Jesus talks that way. He says, when you come to church and you're bringing your gift, if you remember that someone has something against you, don't drop your gift off yet. Instead, go and be reconciled to them. The unity that we have in Jesus is a unity that is thoroughgoing. It is pervasive. It covers us from head to toe, in and out, and there is nothing between brothers and sisters in Christ. Be at peace and live with one another rejoicing. That's what Paul is hoping to find when he arrives in Corinth. But he knows how things have gone, and so he won't be shocked if he finds sinners in the congregation. There are sinners in every congregation, but Paul is sure of this, that the word of God is powerful to forgive sins. The word of God is powerful to raise the dead. And so if the word of God is powerful to do such things as that, then certainly the word of God will heal and restore and set aright anything that has gone wrong among the Corinthians, and that is why he can go there with confidence. He's confident that he will find his children ready to hear God's word. He's confident that God has called them to be his own. This is one of the amazing things about Paul's letters to the Corinthians. They have gone far off the rails. If you read 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians are so far away that anybody in their right mind would not look at them and even call them Christians. And yet, Paul calls them saints. He addresses them as children of God, as God's holy ones, because he is sure that God has called them and made them worthy. That's how it is for us as well. Be sure of this, that you and your brothers and sisters, those with whom you share fellowship in Christ, they've been called by God. They are your own. And rejoice in this, that God's word is powerful to mend anything that is broken, to restore everything that has been put out of place, and to give resurrection and life to each and every one of us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.